We continue our study through the letter of James today um, to the universal church. James wasn't writing to a specific Christian church. He was writing to the universal Christian church. And we're going to continue in chapter 4 today. Um, James is addressing some of the problems that they were experiencing in the early church. And he's also telling them how to fix these problems, uh, the best way to overcome the issues that they were having. Uh, he commended, um, or excuse me, he condemned the rich for abusing the poor. And then he told the poor to stop treating the rich with special favoritism. He told the Christians to not only hear the word, but apply it to be doers of the word and not hearers only. And doing the work is a demonstration of our faith. It's not doing it for the sake of the work. It's doing it to demonstrate our faith. It has hands. It has feet. It has action. He also stressed that we should control our tongues and that we should focus on godly wisdom, not earthly wisdom. And, and that's tough to control our tongues. It seems like the, the opportunity for social media gives us a voice beyond what people can hear immediately in front of us. And so we're, we use those tools, but we can also be very vocal in other places that uh, we don't need to be vocal. We sometimes just need to control our tongues in those instances. James is going to continue to contrast right and wrong, good and bad, in this chapter. And we're going to see the contrast of that. Today's message is titled, Pride versus Humility. And we continue our study through James with chapter 4 in verse 1, where James writes, Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure, that war in your members? You lust and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. So first, James addresses the origin of wars and fights. But he's not talking about unbelievers. We, we would think that he's talking about general wars and fights, but really what he's talking about is battles within the Christian faith, within the church, between believers fighting and, and battling together. When Christians are dissatisfied with what God is providing them, they take matters into their own hands and they try to find satisfaction on their own. They try to find something that gives them pleasure and it fuels their desire for pleasure when they're not satisfied with what God provides. And that's why they were lusting. And not only were they lusting, but they had nothing to show for their lusts. They continued to pour into what they wanted to do but they had nothing to benefit from it. That's why when we attempt to fulfill our own desires, even if we say that we're doing things for God, we can also fail at them because the intent of our heart may not be right. And we may be doing these things for ourselves. 
if we're not doing something for God, we're, we shouldn't expect to see fruit come out of it. And quite often, that's what we want to see. We want to see whatever we do produce fruit. But the only way fruit is produced is if God's power is behind it. If you plant the fruit tree and just leave it alone, that's not going to produce fruit. You know, and if it does, it's not going to be good fruit. So we need to nurture the tree with the proper amount of water, the proper nutrients be, to be able to produce good fruit. And that's where James is going here. See, God doesn't bless our work when we're trying to do something to fulfill our own lusts, our own desires. He's not going to bless that work because he can't. It would almost be confirming that we can do things for ourselves rather than allowing him to do the work through us. So James is using some of the harshest language here when he gets to verse 2. He says, you murder and covet and cannot obtain. In this sense, murdering isn't so much killing someone physically. That's not what he's talking about here. Uh, this type of murder is the same type of murder that Jesus mentions in Matthew chapter 5, verse 21, where he says, You have heard it said, uh, it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of judgment. So Jesus' whole perspective on murder is much different than what we perceive. Murder is killing someone and they die. That's murder. But to Jesus, hating a brother or sister in Christ, being angry with them for no good reason and just being angry and bitter with them is a form of murder. It's a form of hatred that shouldn't be, um, you know, it shouldn't be talked about within the Christian church. It shouldn't be something that we do. That's why Jesus came and died for us, so that we can learn to love each other, so that we can live and trust him for our hope, for our future, for everything. But when we become covetous and when we start coveting the things that we want over the things that God wants for us, uh, we end up hating. John explains it another way in 1 John 3, 14 and 15. He says, we do not know that we pass from death to life because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brother abides in death. Let me read that again because I added a word. It says, we know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brother abides in death. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. So these are some strong, powerful words. They're not easy to hear. They're... Um, challenging because they cause us to question our own hearts. They, they cause us to consider, how am I acting towards my neighbors, my friends, my loved ones, my brothers and sisters in Christ? I have some news for you. 
we don't all see things the same way. I know. It's shocking, isn't it? You know? And, and the funny thing is that we imagine that, okay, we're all Christians here, so we all agree on everything. That's not true. And here's the most important part of that, is that perfection is following everything that Jesus modeled for us to the point where we're executing it perfectly just like Jesus did. That's perfection. Anyone there yet? Okay. We're all working our way to that. But we're at different points in that walk. We're in different places. You know who's going to complete it? Jesus. The day that he returns and takes us home, we will be completed. The work that he begun in us will be completed by him, not by us. It isn't because we worked on I know that you guys are looking and saying, well, you're pretty perfect, Rick. <laughs> At least I thought that's what some of you were thinking. But, you know, here's the truth. I'm not perfect. I know I, I didn't want to let you down. But here's, here's the truth of the matter, is that none of us are. We're all working towards the same goal, and we're all at different places in that walk. And the thing is, is that James, remember now, James was the first letter written to the church outside of the Gospels and, and stuff like that. James is actually the first letter written. Okay, it was written around 45 to 48 A.D., so when he wrote that letter, believe me, it was a shock to those people that were in the church. They thought they had it going on. And many in the church believe that today. Many in the church believe that they've got everything right. There is no perfect church because there's no perfect Christian. So we're just a mess of people gathered together to try to grow closer in our walk with him. We're working together at it. We're working individually at it. But none of us is, but Jesus doesn't look and say, well, you know, you're doing really, really well, but that other guy on the other side of the aisle, you know, he's not, he's not doing so well, you know. So maybe everybody should take after him. Let it be known that I'm pointing at Denny. Okay, now... <laughs> Here's the thing, is that, the thing is, is that none of us can take that position. Me either. You see, it's always pointing back to Christ. That's who we need to emulate. Because we will never go wrong pointing to Christ. If you follow me, I may fall. I may stumble. You may be following me at 85 miles an hour and saying, man, this guy drives fast. He's sinning. But as long as he is, it's okay for me. <laughs> right? You know? A and the thing is, is that I know that I'm not perfect, but I'm also trying to set an example too. I want to be an example. And I work every day to be an example. And every day I get it wrong in some place or another. 
You know why? Because I'm still flesh. I'm still human. And I still have the intents of my heart. And God convicts me every day. Just like he convicts you. So don't feel beaten down when you feel convicted. Don't think that God is just whipping up on you. That's not the truth. But the fact is, he's using that, he's chastising those that he loves because he wants to draw them closer into the relationship with him to where they learn to have the peace that surpasses all understanding, the strength of the Lord in their lives, to be fully armored with the armor of God, to being able to do the things that we can't do in our own flesh. That's what he wants for us. But we keep fighting because we want to do things ourselves. That's what James is talking about here. That's what he's trying to get us out of our own mentality and into that. So the mark of a Christian is the love that we have for the brethren. It shows that we pass from being dead in our sins to being alive in Christ. They will know us by the love that we have for one another. That's how they know that we're Christians, by that love. But if we hate our brother and sister, John equates it to being murdered. And then James tells us in verse 2 that as we continue to fight and war and we still don't get what we're fighting for, we still don't get it. We don't acquire the things that we want even though we're fighting for them. And we do not have because we do not ask. That's the real problem. People are looking for something and they're willing to hurt others to get it. Whether it's physically or emotionally or mentally or whatever, they're willing to hurt others to get what they want. But instead of praying to God and asking him to provide, they try to get it on their own. So what's really happening there? Whenever we try to get something on our own without the direction and leading of the Lord, we're probably, first of all, going to fail when uh, that happens. But we're also doing things selfish, selfishly for us, and it's going to cause the church to struggle too when we're doing that. People are going to see that and they're going to be confused and it's going to cause problems within the church. But you know why people don't pray and instead try to do it on their own? It's because they know it isn't God's will in the first place. When you decide to do something without praying about it, without asking God, which way do you want me to go? I'm just going to do this. You have to question whether or not you're doing something in your power or in the power of God, whether you're doing something you want to do or whether something God wants you to do. And we can do whatever we want. I, I do it all the time. I have to work on a project and I'm working on it, working on it. I, I can know I can solve this project. I can solve the problem and I'm working feverishly at it and hours go by and it just doesn't seem like I'm making any headway on it. And then I stop and I resort to prayer. Resort to prayer? I should have done that in the first place. 
I should have prayed before I started the project. And the Lord opens my mind when I do. And then as I enter in to start working on something, I can see where he's leading, where he opens up my mind to what needs to be done to accomplish the task. And it looks good. And then other people say, wow, that looks really good. That was, that's a neat program you just wrote there. And then I say, yeah. <laughs> right? But the fact of the matter is I prayed about it. And, and so I can give the glory to God for those things because I know that God gave me wisdom during those times. But, you know, it's, we have to question. Am I saying that people will do things to get ahead even in the church, even if it's not God's will? Yes, it happens all the time. People struggle to get ahead even when that's not God's plan for them. And that's why God calls us to the scriptures, because he wants us to get our hearts in line with the scriptures so that we are doing things in his will and not in our own. But we're all human, and that's why human desire drives our motivations. That's why James is addressing this issue, because he's addressing humans. He's not writing to anyone else but humans, Christians, believers. He's not writing to unbelievers. He's not writing to the world. So we can take these, this letter personally. We can apply this personally to our, our lives. He's telling us to fight our human nature and replace it with God's will and desires for our life. That's what he's trying to do. But he's doing it in such a way where it's uncomfortable. You know, we, we always like the version of someone coming and telling us something, telling us how wonderful we are first, buttering us up, and then, you know, and maybe you can make a little change here or there, you know, in, in your life. But, but, you know, let's add a lot of butter to that first, you know. And that's the problem, is that we're so used to being treated like that, you know, or the world says you have to treat people like that. You have to butter them up before you're going to hit them with the... James isn't like that at all. James is saying, look, here's the problem. You're human. Uh-oh. You know, I didn't realize. You know, I, I thought that I had it all together. Quite often, we can get to that point where we think we have it all together where we think we're solid with the Lord and that because I'm not having bad times in my life this week, so I must be doing something right, you know? And that's where we tend to um, get confused as to what God really wants for our lives. James explains in verse 3, you ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your own pleasures. When we ask things of God and we don't receive what we ask for, we need to check our intentions. We need to check our heart. We need to identify whether or not what we want, what we're asking God for, is something that's going to bring us pleasure, us satisfaction, or whether it's going to bless God. And quite often, it's the first. It's us 
pleasing ourselves and trying to meet the intents of our heart, trying to fulfill what we want. If so, we probably won't see those prayers fulfilled by God. We probably won't get the answers that we're looking for because we're focused on ourselves and not on God. So the term that James uses here to spend it on our own pleasures, that word spend is the same word that is used with the prodigal son talking about wasteful spending. The prodigal son got his inheritance and went out and blew it all quickly and he was left with nothing. And, and that's the way that we can spend our inheritance on our own satisfaction. What is our, inher our inheritance? Eternal life. That's our inheritance. We have a relationship with Jesus Christ that is eternal. So from the time that we receive Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, we enter into eternity, even though we're here on earth. We are living in eternity. Because the first breath that we take after we leave this earth is in heaven. Our last breath here is followed by that first breath in heaven. And we're in eternity. Unless, of course, the rapture comes. Harpazo. The rapture. The, we're gone. I was hoping one day that I do that and it actually happens. Wouldn't that be cool, huh? It'll be on the film. <laughs> As if I had something to do with it, right? So, no amount of spending is going to satisfy our flesh either. No matter how much you have and no matter how much you spend, you will never be satisfied by the amount of spending that you spend. It doesn't bring satisfaction. I've learned this the hard way. Uh, you know, from the time I was young, I thought that if I just bought this, I would be happy. Okay, but if I just bought this, I would, hold on, first it needs to be this and then this and then that. And then I'll be happy, right? When a friend came and shared with me and said, you know, you have so many beautiful things. I said, thank you. And I'm buying more. And, and, and the thing that stuck in my heart was when I heard you're a void that you're trying to fill with all of these things. That's the void that Jesus Christ puts in every person so that you fill that void with him. And that's the only way that you can be satisfied is by having Christ in your heart. So you keep trying to fill it with all the things that you buy and you're never going to be satisfied. And I learned that the hard way because even though I did receive Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior, I still tried to fill the void was filled, I had peace, but I still tried to live by buying stuff. It was the things that I had that were going to make me happy. Things have never made me happy. And I always found that once I got them, I had to pay for them and maintain them, and I had to take care of them, clean them, and stuff like that. So the less stuff I had, the better. 
because I didn't have to carry that burden around. I didn't have to have that big load on my back. So the less I had, the better. And I find that God continues to do that in all of our lives if we let him. You see, we have to be willing to give up stuff so that we can fill those areas of our life with him. And James is trying to get us focused on filling ourselves with him and not spending our stuff on ourselves, especially our, our gifts that God has given us. You see, we have more than money and homes and clothing and all of that. We don't need any of that except for what God gives to us. He says, focus on me. I'm going to take care of all of that. Just keep focused on me. And then all of those things will fall into place. When we desire and pray for the things of God, those are the things that he fulfills. When we're focused on him, what do you want, Lord? He will fulfill those things. James is telling us to check the intents of our heart here. He didn't score huge points on the Christianity popularity chart um, there in this initial opening of this chapter, and it's not going to get any better here as he goes into verse 4. He says, adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scriptures say in vain, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously? So James calls out Christians for living lives of adultery. And we know what adultery is. It's the sin of having an intimate relationship outside of marriage. But this goes beyond that. It's not the same kind of adultery. What's interesting is, almost through all of Scripture, as you're reading and when, um, when the Lord is calling out things against people, he says, you know, men do this, brothers do this, and so on and so forth. Here, he says, adulterers and adulteresses. He calls out both men and women for this same sin because it's all of us. It's all of us that put anything or anyone in front of our relationship with Jesus Christ. You see, we're not worshiping God when we worship anyone or anything else. We're taking him off his throne and replacing him with whoever. And that's why he's calling this out. It's not something that Christians should identify with, being adulterers or adulteresses. If James stopped there just with adultery, we would think that, okay, well, he's talking about sexual sin of some sort. But that's not it. That's not what he's talking about at all. If our friendship with the world becomes before our friendship with God, we're committing adultery. So we're telling God that we love the world more than we love him. That's what it comes down to. We may try to justify our relationship with the world by saying, well, 
I've got to be in the world so that I can share the good news of Jesus Christ with the world. So I've got to be in the world. There's nothing wrong with being in the world. Just don't be of the world. You know, we can be in the world sharing the good news. Let us be the example, not them. We should be the one wearing off on them, not them wearing off on us. And that's really what the problem is with the world today is that there are so many places that are getting into the church. It's creeping into the church. And the church is trying to conform to the world. Worship has become an entertainment center. And if you're not having the right amount of entertainment, then you're not doing worship. There are churches that have laser light shows and they have smoke coming off of the stage and they have all of this other stuff. You know, they're trying to set a mood, I guess. I don't think it's necessary to set a mood to get people to worship God. The mood is set in our hearts, not on stage. The, the mood is set in what we're doing in worshiping God. You know what? You're not the audience when the worship team is up here playing music. You are not the audience. God is the audience. And we're singing for him. We're worshiping for him. That's the whole point of worship is so that he is high and lifted up. And the only way that we can enter into the throne room of grace is to worship the Lord. Not to get up there and to show off our singing voice because I'd get kicked out. <laughs> He'd say, ah, next. <laughs> you know? I, this isn't the voice, though. This, you know, this isn't American Idol. This is a place where we come together, where we lift our voices in praise to the Lord. We're not doing this as entertainment. We're doing this as worship. And, you know, I, I don't mean to be critical if you attend a church or have attended a church that has smoke and stuff like that um, off of the, off, coming off the stage and it, it sets a mood or something like that. Um, you know, that's what they say. But I think it's more important to get our heart in the right mood, not my attitude, not my visuals. You know, if you really need it, I have a laser pointer. I can, I can move around the room if you wouldn't do it. I don't think we need to go there. I think we just need to worship the Lord in spirit and in truth. We're called the bride of Christ for a reason. Because we're married to him. We're going to be going up into heaven as the bride of Christ. So adultery is any time we put anyone before our relationship with him. And that's why adultery it just is fitting. It's fitting. It makes sense. Um, and it shouldn't be part of our lives. So in James 5, he points out the scripture that the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously. There is no scripture that says that. There's a bunch of scriptures that imply it. 
throughout the Old Testament that we have a jealous God. And he's not jealous in a bad sense, in a negative sense. He's jealous in a, the right sense, in a righteous jealousy. He loves us. He created us for worship, to worship him. But he gave us free will to choose what we wanted to do. And he's jealous for our attention. The good news is that when we give him the attention, he speaks to us. He loves us. He pours out his blessings upon us. And when we're weak, he strengthens us. And when we're sick, he heals. And if he doesn't heal, he gets us through by being there with us every step of the way. It's okay not to be healed. If you're not healed of an illness, you're in the same place that Paul was in, where he had a thorn in his side, and he asked for God to take it away from him, and God said, my grace is sufficient for you. And then Paul never asked again. Paul was okay with it. We just have to learn how to be okay with whatever God gives us because whatever God gives us is better than anything that we can earn on our own, anything that we can plan and come up with on our own. Many people believe it's impossible to put God in this place, in, in this place of honor in our lives. We, we just struggle with it, and there's no way we can keep him there in that place. And it's almost true. You see, because we're human, and we get distracted really easy. You know, I, I, I watch a TV show, and if a commercial comes on, man, I don't want to watch a commercial. What else is on? You know, and, and I'll flip the channel because that I lost interest that quickly. A and that's the way our hearts work sometimes, too. But the most important thing is for us to stay focused on him because even when he isn't speaking at certain times, that doesn't mean that he isn't aware and he isn't there, that he left the room. He's still there. In verse 6 we read, but he gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Grace is the solution to the problem that we have. It's all about grace. God provides us with the grace that we need to put him first in our lives. And that's not something that we're used to. I know that whenever I receive gifts, I have a hard time receiving. I'm not good at receiving gifts. That doesn't mean you can stop giving them. But... Um, <laughs> You know, but Cheryl often says that, you know, that I'm just not, I don't receive gifts really well because I, you know, I, I just feel like God has blessed me so much that I don't need gifts anymore. You know, I'm good with the gifts, but I love giving gifts. I love blessing others with gifts. And, and so I love to see the joy that comes from giving. And, and it truly is blessed, more blessed to give than to receive. It truly, I've learned that. But starting out, I wasn't like that. I was a good receiver. Man, I, there would be nothing that would get by me. If you wanted to give me something, I'm taking it. You know, and I was good at receiving. 
But now I've learned that giving is just, what a blessing to give and, and to see the appreciation uh, from others that receive. And, and God, I believe, does that too with us. He gives us an abundance of grace and we need it. We just need to humble ourselves and submit ourselves to him to receive it. That's the other problem, is that we have a hard time receiving the gifts because we're still so focused on ourselves that we're not receiving the gift. Well, that isn't the best gift. I want a better gift. Do you have another gift for me? You know, that gift's okay. I wonder if I can sell it. I wonder how much I can get for it on eBay. I like the picture Spurgeon gives us of grace. This is what Spurgeon says. Sin comes up like Noah's flood, but grace rides over the tops of the mountains like the ark. Sin is the flood, and grace is the ark that just keeps us afloat and safely keeps us away and out of the water. That's the grace of God. And the more it rains, the grace is still there. The grace didn't go away. So it doesn't matter how much sin was out there, there's always enough grace. When we receive his grace, he helps us to resist the devil and he will flee from us. Not because the devil is afraid of us. The devil is not afraid of us. Okay, And, and you can shout at the devil all you want but you may end up getting spanked. So not good because we're told that, you know, it's not good to approach the devil and try to fight with the devil. But we know that he who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. But it's because of the Lord, not because of anything that we're doing. It's not because of us. It's because of him. So we just need to remember that whenever we're in a battle, that we have victory over the battle because of him. James continues to encourage us the right way to seek God in verse 8, where he says, Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your, your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep, let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. At first glance, these scriptures may not seem so encouraging. You know, talking about lamenting and mourning. And, but if we look, we can see that there are seven um, steps that we should follow to seek God and find repentance from him. Step one, in verse seven, we're told to submit to God. This means that we should obey his word. That's how we submit ourselves to God, by being obedient to his word, conforming his word to our lives. That's the first step. Number two, resist the devil. By standing firm in the truth, of God, we resist the devil. We have to stand firm in the truth. And then in verse 8, number 3, we're told to draw near to God. 
The best way to draw near to God is through prayer. Quite often, when we're in prayer, we're the ones doing all the talking. And we're not hearing back. Prayer is actually a two-way conversation. Yes, we can share our hearts to God. Now, here's the thing I found in my life about prayer. When I spend time in prayer, a lot of times as I'm praying and I hear the prayer come out of my mouth, I think, who just said that? Because that was a stupid prayer. Boy, did I really just say that? And that's how God sometimes speaks to me. He says, listen to what you're saying. Listen to what you're asking for. And then I think, you know, I'm glad I was praying out loud. And I'm glad no one else heard it. But God speaks to me in that way. Another way he speaks to me is when I'm not praying audibly, but I'm just listening. And he speaks to me. Quite often we pray and we're filling the, the quiet gaps with our own voice, our own thoughts. There's that uncomfortable pause and we feel like we have to respond. The most important thing for us to do is listen. Listening doesn't come and hearing God doesn't come from the thunder or the earthquake it comes from the still, small voice of God. And when we're willing to hear that, and we open ourselves up to his voice, we hear it. And quite often, he'll use his word to speak to us, to speak to our hearts. And we can hear his voice as we read his word. Number four, cleanse our hands. Hands refund, uh, refer to actions. Hands refer to doing things. And so we're told to cleanse our hands, meaning what we're doing, we shouldn't be doing the wrong things with our hands, but we should be doing godly things, the things that God tells us to do, the opportunities God gives us to work for him with our hands. Number five, purify our hearts. Meaning, we should inspect the intent of our hearts before we do something. And purifying them is not following the lusts of our hearts, but living for God, learning what his desires are. And when the word says that, you know, trust in the Lord and understand what he is telling us, filling the desires in our heart, it doesn't mean that whatever our heart desires, he's going to fill. What that means is that he's placing his desires into our heart so that we can follow after his desires. And when we understand the desires of God, we can fulfill them. So we should purify our hearts from our fleshly desires and then fill it with the desires of God. Number six, in verse nine... We're told to lament and mourn and weep. We should mourn over the sinfulness of the world. There's a lot of sin out there in the world. We see it in the news all the time. 
no matter which news station you watch, sin is there. It's prevalent. There is no conservative sin and liberal sin. It's all sin. And so we don't have to go far to see people in sin. We just have to go to the mirror. And when we recognize that it's sin, then we shouldn't be entertaining it. Whether it be external or internal, we're told to lament and mourn and weep. And finally, number seven, in verse 10, we're told to humble ourselves in the sight of the Lord. We must recognize that we're sinners. <clears throat> Quite often, we look at our own condition and think, well, I'm better than those other people that are just living in sin. They're adamant sinners, and I'm, I'm not a sinner anymore because I've accepted Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. That's not what the Word says. We still have sin within. Paul called himself the chief of sinners, even though he was the one who wrote one-third of the New Testament. He called himself the chief of sinners because he recognized the sin within his heart. If you think that you're not a sinner, then that's the first place that you need to start looking at. That's the first thing you, start, you need to start praying about because we're all sinners. We all have fallen short of the glory of God and we are sinners, but we have hope. We, we don't have to live in the sin and dwell in the sin. We don't have to submit to the sin. And that's what James is saying here, that we humble ourselves in the sight of the Lord and he will lift us up. In closing, James lists these seven things, but they're not a checklist of things to do to get into heaven. Quite often, that's what we're looking for in the Bible. We're looking for the checklist. Okay, what is it I have to do to get into heaven? Right? We, we, want, we like things black and white. You know, I want to know how I can evaluate myself and, and, you know, go down that list and make sure that I'm doing all the right things. Problem is, is that's not how God sees things. You see, he sees the intents of our heart. And quite often we can be doing everything really well externally where other people can see us doing all these wonderful things and we're doing them really well but our heart isn't right. And that's where it all begins. It begins in our hearts. So James wants to contrast a life of pride versus a life of humility. And humility is the attitude that we need to have. We need to humble ourselves before God, before he can accomplish the work that he wants to do in our lives. We have to first be humbled before him. And we have to be willing to allow him to do the work for his purposes in our lives. Paul explains it this way in Ephesians chapter 2. He says, And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins, 
in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us. In Christ Jesus. Here's the key. It's a done deal. You see, he said here, he made us alive. It's past tense. We are alive in Christ because we received the gift that he gave to us. And now we're made alive. And we were made to sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. It's a done deal. There's a seat with your name on it that we can sit together in Christ Jesus. Now all we have to do is live like it. And through his grace, he makes that possible. Amen?